0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. It is a big show for you today, so let's get started. Later, we'll convene a panel of experts to talk about why we love true crime stories. Is it fear or is it something else? Stick around, we'll get to that in just a little while. We'll also meet Kim Eichlin, the award winning author of the new novel Speak Silence, which is set against the backdrop of the fallout of the Bosnian War. But first, This is a great story. Singer-songwriter Thad Cockrell was about to throw in the towel on his music career when Jimmy Fallon chanced upon one of his songs and changed his life. He's now a number one selling artist with a great story. Here's Thad. On January 3rd, you made a list of goals for 2021. One of which was find a new career. Your new album, if in case you feel the same, didn't make a dent on the charts. What was your headspace? at that moment on January 3rd.
1: The headspace that I was in was, I've been doing this a long time. And uh, I think whenever you do something commercially, when you're making art commercially, enough people need to sign up for the conversation to make it viable, you know, really, that's that's really it. Yeah. And uh, I have an incredible group of fans that are like hardcore, you know, like whenever they wanna talk to me about my music, it's never like, yo, I like your song, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not that they want to, they want to sit down and they want to have a long conversation about how this music is, has, has touched them. And, and that's incredibly meaningful and I'm so grateful for it. Uh, but, you know, we, we released this album. It came out in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, did what it could do, but, you know, it was kind of in the echo chamber of, of, of the normal fans that connect with my music and there was no way to get out and tour it and support it we couldn't even get a review really. I mean, it was wild. I was just staring reality in the face, you know, 2021, it doesn't look like things are going to pick up till late. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I I, genuinely, I just thought, you know what, maybe, maybe my time has come. Like maybe I've done what I can do. I've said what I can say. And I'm so proud of this album and how hard everyone worked on it. Uh, The producers, the writers, the players, everyone. And, um, And so it was just me really coming to terms with, uh, it was kind of a surrender in a lot of ways. It was me putting something down. And, um, I think my, you know, my story is, is probably, you know, 80% perseverance. And then that last 20% surrender of just being like, okay. And, you know, it was a resounding no,
0: (laughs) But I have to ask, would you have been happy had you said, okay, I'm putting this away? Would you have been happy working in family therapy, you have a master's degree in that, or making hot sauce, which I know you've done lately? Would either of those things fulfilled you? Or would there always have been an itch to make music? I don't know. I don't process things. Without writing about it, it's how I process
1: things, right? It's breath for me. So I, I don't think I would have ever, at any point, stopped making music or writing songs. I, really, songs happen to me more than anything. They come to me, and 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 I'm incredibly grateful. I'm, I'm even this morning. I'm like sending up a prayer. Hey, if you want to send me a song, let's party, you know. Uh, so you know, I don't think I would have have ever stopped doing that i think i was just going to really switch focus you know what i I love
0: doing is helping people we have to talk about swinging oh yeah come on how did how did jimmy fallon hear the song because that was sort of the beginning of this journey that you've been on it's not even a journey it's a roller coaster it is like being shot out of a rocket what's happened to you Completely. And what Jimmy has
1: done, like, I've never seen anybody do anything like it. Like there's playing like a late night show. That's not what happened. Like he, he, he went on, I played on a Tuesday night. He goes on a Friday morning and does a three minute talk about, about what I'm about, the story of him hearing it. He pulls up my record, you know, and he keeps talking about it and he's talking to the roots and then I end up playing. He basically made the whole episode the night I played about the song "Swinging." And then for the rest of the week, every night he kept bringing it up and talking about how the record was doing, number one, and how the song. It's it's wild. It's absolutely incredible. But what happened is Jimmy um, was walking through a, a hardware store. A, a lamp switch had gone bad on his lamp, and he thought, oh my gosh, I think I'm I'm gonna you know, nobody can come over. It's during the lockdown and I'm going to go, go, you know, try to fix this at the local hardware store. So he walks down the street, goes into the hardware store and, and he hears my song playing over the speakers. If I'm going to go down, I want to go down, sweet. He's like, oh my goodness. I mean, he tells the story better than I do. He's like, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to it. And I'm like, this song is amazing. And he, and he Shazam's it. And sure enough, it's my song Swing, And he sat there and he said he's mesmerized and that he listens to the whole song standing there in the aisle. and. Little did I know, let this be of encouragement to anybody listening, you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's coming, hang in there because little did I know, you know, November, December, beginning of January where I was so defeated and so really just, um, yeah, I think that would be it, defeated and ready to move on. I had someone listening and it was his like theme song and he was like jamming it, right? And it was Jimmy Fallon. And so, you know, that's how he heard it. And, you know, it's so interesting because I think this song really, like, connected with him. Because when I made it, I've never made a lot of money doing music. Um, It's been a complete labor of love. And I think anytime you do something creative on a lot of levels, it's it's a fool's errand, right? You're listening to my interview with swing and
0: songwriter Thad Cockrell.
1: But when I wrote that song, it was me fighting my cynicism. Right. And if I write a song like Swingin', but I sound pissed off while doing it, like it doesn't work. You know what I mean? You have to you kind of almost have to trick yourself into thinking into believing that music has made you a bajillionaire. And that's kind of what I was doing, you know, um, and uh, because you still want to like you you don't want to write
0: music with like a poor as me or a victim mentality. Or I, at least I don't. Right. I love that. On the Tonight Show, sure, they can book pretty much whoever they want. But Fallon hears the song. Want. Yeah, whoever they want. And, and Fallon hears this song and and pays it forward by bringing you on. And then you wake up and you have a number one song. And- well, no, that didn't happen. It. I woke up
1: and and, you know, we were all really excited. And the song was at like, and the album was in like the top 40, right? It was in like number 40 and um and then that day we got a phone call um from the today show and they said hey we want to have you on the today show and um i'm like great so i flew home and i'm i'm sitting i did it like exactly where i'm sitting right now and i did the today show the uh two days two mornings after right so i woke up that next morning went to bed woke up the next morning and i did the today show and um and within an hour, <laughs> the song was number one. I mean, over the week, like worldwide, and the al- album was number two. And all the, all the, it was just. I, I kept looking at it for days, and, and it stayed up there for a good while. And I, I just, I, I, I kept looking at it because I'm like the weekend Ariana Grande, like these huge songs, and my song is number one. And I, my mind just, it like. It was just like stuck. It's like, I can't compute what I'm actually
0: seeing. It was just absolutely incredible. So how do you process? Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you, Jimmy Fallon. How do you process process all of that? Because it's a lot to have happen. I mean, I'm speaking to you in February. In January, you were thinking, well, maybe I got to find something else to do. And then all of a sudden, everything flips on its head. Does it play on your head at all? You know... (laughs) It's such a good question. You're good at this. Uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a really, you know, there's been moments where I'm like, uh, you know, to be, first of all, it's a gift. So I'm, I'm, I'm wildly thankful for it. Right. But there's also moments where I've never experienced anything like this. And I've had, you know, I was like, I'm kind of moments of like, freak out right and so i called up a friend of mine who who is an author and he's done very well and i was processing with him what i was feeling and he's like oh yeah yeah yeah." he's like he was like i had stress before i had any real success but but when i had real success i had a stress that made the other look like child's play but it doesn't last very long like you'll 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 walk into it. You'll be, you'll be okay. And so I was like, Oh, thank, thank, thank you. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, most, most importantly, um, I am incredibly grateful. And, you know, one of the things that people keep asking me is like, what's next. And the truth is, is like, I don't know. Um, I didn't make this happen. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I didn't. And, um, and so if I can receive this as a gift, then that means I just want to show up for whatever's coming and do my best to, to be available, um, and helpful and, and be grateful for
0: that too. I think that there's something really cool about finding success a little bit later on. Hell yeah. Hell Uh, yeah. Because you've paid the dues, you've been around. And I always think of George Clooney who said, I'm so glad that I didn't get popular at age 19 he yeah. was almost 40, I think, by the time he yeah. gets real success. Real he success. said that when he looks around at all the people that he's worked with, you tend <sighs> to freeze in age at the moment at which you get very successful. So if you're oh, a pop star wow. going to be at 48 forever. <laughs> I
1: think the story of late success is more compelling than the story of early success. And we need more stories like that mm-hmm. because um, it's a lot more rare. I want to be a great songwriter and a singer. And, you know, I feel like I was just, I'm getting better at it. I love the idea of, at one point they said, you know, 30 is the new 20 and then 40 is the new 20. I would love it if
0: the 70 was the new 20, because I think we need people's brilliance for their entire life while they're walking on this earth. That was Thad Cockrell. Find In Case You Feel the Same, his album and the single Swingin' wherever you legally download music. A little bit later on, we are going to put together a panel of people who know what they're talking about when it comes to true crime. We're going to talk about why we love true crime shows like Dateline, and Tiger King, and the Hotel Cecil, all that stuff. But first, award-winning author Kim Eichlin lives in Toronto. She is the author of Elephant Winter and Dagmar's Daughter, and her third novel, The Disappeared, was nominated for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and won the Barnes & Noble's Discover Great New Writers Award for Fiction. Her most recent novel is Speak Silence, a poetic book about war and loss, suffering and courage, and the strength of women through it all. It focuses on a journalist for a Canadian travel magazine who hears about a film festival in Sarajevo where she knows a former flame will be with his theatre company. She takes the assignment to investigate the fallout of the Bosnian War, reconnect with the love of her life, and attend The Hague's International Tribunal on Rape as a Weapon of War. I began by asking Kim Ickland about researching a book as complex as Speak Silence.
2: This book took more prep work than um, has been the case, although I always do a lot of research and I really like the research process. But this book, um, you know, I mean, it's been in my mind actually for a decade or more. And even before that, I watched this war on television, you know, in the early nineties, when we were all watching the Siege of Sarajevo guided by Canadian reporters because people were on the ground there. So, you know, I remembered watching this floor, and then I also really remembered when the courts started in The Hague, because Louise Darbour, the Canadian uh, judge, was one of the chief, early chief prosecutors. And at that point, when I heard about that, and then I started hearing about the particular trial, um, I was fascinated because this particular trial was driven by women. You know, first of all, they needed the women witnesses to come forward, which they are absolutely the center of this of this case and story. They immense courage to do what they did. Um, and but then, you know, there were a lot of Canadian uh, people working in the courts and there were women um, prosecutors, women researchers, women interpreters. And the head judge on this trial was the woman as well. So at that point, I thought, well, this is really interesting. Women are driving not only this particular trial, but change in the law. And so it was over that period of time that I started to think I would really like to engage with this in a fictional way.
0: Is that what keeps that fire going? When you say you've been thinking about this for a decade, uh, that's a long time to have a project rattling around in your head and to stay enthusiastic about it and to go back to it. Uh, Is it, that, what you just told me, uh, that it's a, a female-driven story, that laws were changed and it was so significant in that, or is it the more dramatic elements of the story that you respond to as a novelist?
2: I think both, absolutely both. And then the, um, when you're working in fiction, there is always an emotional component and a deeply personal component Otherwise, you, you don't want to stay with those characters or that particular story, and a story like this, which is difficult for so long. And so, but often that's a little bit unconscious. And as you work, you begin to see where all these resonances are. So for me, you know, I mean, it was not something that was front of mind when I was doing the work and research, but I think of the more generalized experience of the silencing of marginalized communities of women, what an international phenomenon this is, were were that part of that sort of personal connection to this story.
0: Do you think that the book's themes of uh, exploring speaking truth to power, of speaking up against the very people who would do almost anything to silence you, is particularly poignant now given our uh, recent political divide?
2: I think it has always been important. But I think that we are hearing and seeing and acting on it a little differently. Now, I think we have an increased awareness of it. Um, And so I think that um, I think this question is something that erupts through history. And we're at one of those eruption moments right now because we what we're constantly doing is like creating new stories around this phenomenon and then breaking the silence in different ways. So right now there's another breaking of this silence and there's an insistence that people speak and there's an insistence that stories go on the record. And so I think that this coheres right now in that way.
0: You're listening to my interview with the internationally best-selling and Giller shortlisted author of Speak Silence, Kim Eichlin. It's interesting when I think about the events of the last four or five years, you're right, these peaks and valleys, I guess, happen. But uh, I, this is the first that I remember being particularly involved in that I thought, I'm actually a part of this history. I am, I, I'm, I'm one of the puzzle pieces here. Uh, and, and it's been a remarkable time, and I'm still processing, and I think will be for a very long time.
2: Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. And then, I mean, particularly someone in your position that has a public platform and you're mediating between public ideas and and individual ideas and, and the intellectual life of the time. I mean, what you choose to engage in from your platform is defining the discourse Mm -hmm. And it's allowing the discourse to go broader and in different directions. And I think that that's really, really important, you know, and it's very interesting what you're saying about not knowing what history we're in until we look back on it. But, you know, because people have said to me, well, you know, did these trials make a difference because these crimes are still going on all over the world? And uh, when I asked people in the courts, especially about this, because they give everything, they give their work lives, they've moved there, they're, you know, they give everything to these. The, one man in particular gave me a very good optic on this, which was, he said, you know, when you look back to World War II, there was no word for genocide after, until the end of World War II. Uh, there were, was no language for crimes against humanity. And so when those people were in that moment of time defining those things, they didn't realize how absolutely transformational it was going to be to the public consciousness. And I think you're right. I mean, I think that that's what's happening now. We've got transformational things happening. We just may not be able to quite name them yet.
0: Yeah, we're still looking for the language. And I think that we're still relying on old language. Uh, Everything is something gate you know, Or or it's it's very easy to say, well, Donald Trump's a fascist. I don't think that we've come up with the the correct terminology to describe exactly what's going on in the world, and not just in the United States, but in a number of places around the world. I, I don't think that we're quite there yet. We'll, yeah. we'll get there, but it yeah. will be, it, with the fullness of time.
2: The, maybe the general principles remain broadly the same, but the particularities mm-hmm. of every country, of every system of politics... Chefs, which is why we keep struggling to be more accurate about, I mean, I remember Václav Havel in um, the Czech Republic, uh, Western intellectuals were coming to him all the time during the 19, late 60s and 70s, saying, how can we help with, the, with your revolution and so on? And Havel said, go home and defend your own democracies. He said, we need to do this for ourselves. And democracies are very fragile that always stayed with me because here in North America, we think of a robust democracy, but we have seen it threatened.
0: You talk about how a writer is always aware of the torment and fleeting delight of the world and is forged in this awareness. Is this something that you were born with? Is it something that you have cultivated? Is it something, is it nature or nurture?
2: Hmm. (laughs) I, I suspect it's a combination Uh, You know, storytelling was part of my growing up. I had uh, I lived in a suburb, and uh, I had a grandfather who lived in downtown Toronto, and even though we were not so far apart, he mailed me letters all the time from the moment I could read. And uh, so for me, you know, reading a letter and learning to write a letter was this magical way of beginning to be part of the adult world and to, to be part of storytelling. And then I think I do think that you know um, there was a certain sort of social consciousness that I was raised in that was not self-conscious at all it was just about being kind you know be good to the people around you Um, but that was very much part of the fabric of how I was trained to be brought up to be.
0: You have often written about turbulent places Uh, Cambodia, Pakistan, now Sarajevo. Um, What attracts you towards these places and and periods in time as a writer?
2: I think that um, in part this was a circumstance of chance. I mean I've had the possibility to visit these places and there's a there's a there is a sort of an abiding question that I live with which is once you see, once you know, what do you do? Uh, and so in some of these places, you know, I was there for other reasons or just traveling. Um, so this immense, writing from the immense privilege of being able to have traveled in the world, you take that and you say, what do you do with that? You know. Uh, so uh, let me tell you a story from, from, from this book. Uh, when I went to Sarajevo, I wasn't absolutely sure I was going to write. I was very much hoping to at this point. Um, and I was traveling with a soldier from the region, a former soldier, and also a, a caseworker from the UN came on this trip, and he had all the documentation and all the, all the uh, facts and figures and so on. But one of the things I did without, without those two was to go to the Women Victims of War offices, and I met uh, the woman who had founded that organization, and, um, and she you know, showed me the walls and walls of files of women's testimony, which I found very moving because I knew that in The Hague, for example, you know, a very small number of women testified, but here in this office were thousands of stories. And at the end of our long talk, I said to her, what do you want? And she said, um, and I was thinking, you know, she'd talk about justice or, you know, prosecution in, in Bosnia or something, but she didn't. She said, I need money to keep this work going and to support these women who have been marginalized, you know, for 20 years. And she said, I need the world not to forget. So when people tell you their stories, they have the generosity to tell you their stories. And then they just tell you, they ask you, don't forget. Um, This becomes a kind of powerful motivator to write.
0: Well, I think when you talk about Uh, traveling and the immense privilege of traveling and how that has fueled your work. Um, I always think uh, that when you travel, it's a, a breeding ground for empathy. And you see you meet people like you've just described, you see how other people live, and you realize that no matter where you are in the world, we're essentially all the same. We want a safe place for our families, we want food on our tables, a roof over our head, whatever it might be, but there's a commonality there that uh, you really dawns on you and blossoms when you travel, when you get out in the world. And then taking that a step or two further, when you translate that into uh, your world, which is uh, being an author or my world in the films, I see books and movies as being little machines for empathy. Because if you don't have that privilege to be able to travel around the world, uh, you can benefit by seeing films about the way other people live and reading novels about the way other people live. And, uh, and empathy is, I think, probably at the very heart of a lot of the work that you do because you do write about turbulent pe- uh, places and, and times, uh, mm-hmm. but you do so with an empathetic eye towards the characters.
2: Yes, I think this is a beautiful way of putting it. This idea of breeding ground, or machine, or home for empathy. I think this is a really, really good way to 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 conceive of it. And um, there's nothing. I mean, interesting during the during the COVID pandemic. You know, there's nothing like the feeling tone that we get from being with each other. Um, and but even what we're doing. Allows that because it's you know the two minds and two sets of feelings connecting together, uh, and 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 humans do this you know they're they're absolutely driven to do it it is part of our nature, um, and so yes when you're traveling you can you can do this, we can also I mean it just I'll throw this in we can also do this in our absolute daily lives you know when I step out my door to make that moment of connection with somebody on the street or a neighbor or I think you know people can do this no matter where they are and in especially in places um not maybe especially but also in places like uh Toronto that are very diverse um we have access to each other's stories if we're able to hear and I've been very interested in the idea of what I call deep listening, because in order to know, we can't assume that we know people's stories. We have to really, really listen deeply and, and ask questions and be curious. Um, and, and I think that this is what novels do too, and film, as you're pointing out.
0: You're listening to my interview with the internationally best-selling and Giller shortlisted author of Speak Silence, Kim Eichlin, let's talk a little bit more generally I like when I'm speaking with authors uh, just to find out a couple of, of things I know on the radio you're not going to know this but you're sitting in front of a bookcase uh, filled with books are you in a workshop or are you in the place that you write right now
2: I have um, I have a, a yeah, study that's separate from the rest of the house. Uh, I am fairly disciplined about it. I'm also an early morning worker. Um, and uh, it it's changed over the course of my life. I have a sort of active domestic situation with um, I have had with much younger people and then elders and so on. So depending on where I've been in my life course and how much caregiving I've been doing. Um, but, but regardless of any of that, I've always been an early morning worker. That's your, that's your safe time, right? Nobody wants to be up with you at 5.30. <laughs> well,
0: and there's no way to procrastinate really at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, you can't vacuum. You can't uh, phone anybody. There's all the things that I do when I have to write something. I find myself uh, doing work around the house. The house is never cleaner than when I'm working on a book. Uh, <laughs> but if you start at 5.30 in the morning, it's just you and your thoughts and you know the potential of a blank page sitting in front of you. And that that's works true.
2: for me. Yeah, that's true. I like the idea of vacuuming.
0: <laughs> what advice would you pass on to some new writers?
2: Oh, I'm... I'm advice um, adverse, I would say. (laughs) But I think the most important thing a writer can do is get to the desk, just get there. Um, And second to that, or maybe even before that, is to read a lot. But it's it's amazing because, you know, I mean, I teach at the School for Continuing Studies, so I teach people who have full jobs and often families are incredibly busy. And if, if you've got the discipline to even find a few minutes um, each day, it kind of keeps that pot boiling. I think that's pretty important for writing. I had a student once who wrote a book of poetry at stoplights. <laughs> 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 Every time she hit a stoplight, she'd write another line. I said, how on earth did you get this done? She said, it's, I did it all when I was, well, I shouldn't say she was striving, but at the stoplights. <laughs> I so people that. who are really driven to get the words down, they'll find those few minutes to do it.
0: Are you working on something right now?
2: Um, I'm always working on things, but what I'm working on right now is quite unformed. This book has really taken a lot of um, emotional energy. Mm-hmm. And so I need some time to kind of, I'm reading a lot right now. Um, at some time for a fallow period, really.
0: Yeah. yeah. A little palate cleanser. Well, are you able, when you're writing a book like Speak Silence, uh, at the end of the day, because many of the themes that you're dealing with are so heavy and you have, you've researched them, you've spent time reading about them, you've, you've traveled. uh, Is it hard to turn it off?
2: Um, Probably. uh, Or it's probably something that while you're working, you're kind of carrying it most of the time. Mm. Um, the, The trick would be in terms of just shifting gears for when you're social when you're in a social situation or your family situation I walk a lot I like to run a bit um being out in the air is great
0: well Kim thank you so much what a pleasure to speak to you
2: well thank you I'm just delighted and thank you for taking on this book I really really appreciate that it's not easy subject matter um but you um you're you you're unafraid, and that's a wonderful thing. Thank you.
0: That was Kim Eichlin, the internationally best-selling and giller shortlisted author of Speak Silence. You can find her book wherever you buy fine books. Do you set the PVR for Dateline every week? Do you watch reruns of the O.J. Simpson murder case? If so, you were among a growing number of people obsessed with true crime. But why do we want to hear stories about murder, blood, guts, and mayhem? Our panel, journalist Kevin Donovan, Author of Billionaire Murders, Christy Lee, host of the Canadian True Crime podcast, Canadian True Crime, and Michael Arntfield, a former detective, now writer, producer, and consultant for the true crime series To Catch a Killer, aims to answer that question. Why are people obsessed with true crime stories?
3: I think it's a classic case of human nature wanting to know who done it. Mm-hmm. And, and in my experience, people want not only to know who did a crime, but they want to see punishment.
4: I agree. And I think we also need to distinguish between crime stories generally, mysteries that have existed for millennia mm-hmm. in different mediums uh, and what they're now calling true crime as something very branded, as something that's very much in its own lane, as something uh, that is distinguished from, I think, the types of mysteries
0: or, or, or unsolved Uh, crimes that people have historically sought out for different reasons. Do you think, Christy, that it's because it's true that it could actually happen, that that's what's drawing us in?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's humans have an interest in human interest stories. They're always the top stories, and these are the worst kind of human interest stories. So uh, people want to know what people are doing, how, what, what's the reason for them doing it, and uh, how can we prevent it from happening to us and the people that we love. So, right, yeah. Well,
0: that's the theory, that we've evolved to sort of have an interest in these, in these stories so that we can figure out how not to be a victim.
5: Right, exactly. Yeah,
0: Kevin. When you're investigating a story like the Sherman murders, which is the subject of your new book, The Billionaire Murders, uh, how closely do you work with the police? You're an investigative reporter. Are you working on this stream and they're working on this stream, and you you, or how much connection do you have? There's no
3: working with the Toronto police, <laughs> uh, and they would say the same about me. Uh, my only. Uh, Interaction with them comes uh, every six months when I have the opportunity to cross-examine the detective on the case. Uh, I'm certainly trying to find out what they know. Uh, They may be trying to find out what I know, which would be easy because they could read the Toronto Star or Mm -hmm. my book. Uh, But uh, what I find is that uh, it's changed a lot in my 35 years. There used to be more of a give and take where I would be able to talk to a detective in a coffee shop or perhaps
0: a bar. That's just not happening anymore. Michael, you used to be a detective, uh, so tell me, does that ring true to you? Has the the relationship between uh, a writer or a storyteller of of true crime and the police changed since you were a detective? I think it has, and it also depends what, quite frankly, ecosystem in which the police and media mm-hmm. are, are
4: are operating together. Uh, Canada and I mean, I do uh, production work, and and I appear on a lot of true crime, uh, you know, series okay. and. Uh, doing a production in Canada versus the United States is diametrically different in terms of in terms of the level of cooperation in terms of and you can just see it in terms of police media conferences in the US never mind then a a larger-scale production where there's I think an expectation of cooperation because otherwise the media will will go and get it themselves so there there is that still give and
0: take particularly in the larger media centers I find and Christy how did uh, an Australian end up hosting hosting a Canadian true crime podcast
5: Yeah, it's kind of a a ridiculous story, but um, in 2015, a workmate slapped a phone and and subscribed me to a podcast app and said, here, listen to Serial, and that is the big podcast that got a lot of people onto the podcasting platform, Mm -hmm. and from then, I was obsessed, and I was a a big. I was big into the Facebook groups regarding true crime, and everyone was saying, who's covering the Canadian cases? No one's covering them, except CBC, who were doing them on a kind of a a, a long-form series. Um, So I just kind of decided to try my hand at it. Um, I was feeling a little uh, not productive in my spare time and decided to learn a new skill. So I taught myself how to create a podcast, and uh, away I went.
0: And here you are. How (laughs) many episodes later?
5: um i'm just about to produce episode number sixty
4: wow wow that's a lot of true crime
5: it is it's (laughs) interesting
4: you mentioned serial and i've I've written about this is um serial really i think marked uh what i now call the fourth wave (coughs) of true crime in the last century or so in that uh, people who hadn't heard the term before um or were sort of um skittish about hearing or squeamy about crime stories, I mean, it really created a new zeitgeist, not in terms of podcasting, but in terms of then what follows with, with streaming, mm-hmm. in terms of books, um, and I mean, I've got my own sort of opinions on uh, the quality investigation <laughs> yeah. in that podcast and why that particular case was chosen, but... Uh, there's no debating the quality of the storytelling, and I think a lot of people heard that and, and jumped on it.
0: You're listening to the True Crime Panel, Kevin Donovan, Michael Artfield, and Christy Lee. Kevin, when you're writing about real people, this has to affect the storytelling somehow. Do you have to be aware that, if, in the Sherman case, for instance, <coughs> which you've been covering so, so uh uh, extensively, that there are cousins and children and, and there's a, an extended family. Does that play into your reporting? Yeah, it doesn't. I think the the biggest thing for me was the Sherman case. Is
3: that my entree to their world was their best friends. Mm. So this is a couple. Uh, Honey was 70. Uh, Barry was 75, and they have friends. And and their friends, uh, reluctantly at first, but eventually started uh, taking me into their uh, the, the world of their 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 dead friends, and uh, were very helpful. And that did lead me into some conversations with family members, which were very helpful. Uh, I think the best part of the book. Uh, well, the book is split. It's half about the murder, uh, and it's half about their lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I never lose sight of that in the book, that it's uh, two people who are
0: a big part of the Canadian uh, social fabric uh, who are, have been taken from us. And did your experience as a detective give you an insight as to how to deal with people who are suffering as a detective often I would imagine that you're meeting people on the worst day of their lives Uh, as a storyteller that has to bleed over and and influence you quite frankly there's no
4: substitute for the experience other than perhaps 35 years Mm -hmm. uh, working the crime beat uh, and as an investigative journalist but in terms of the experience uh, number one, empathy and dealing with people. I've, I've said it before, the three uh, number one qualities uh, a good police officer has is uh, common sense, uh, empathy, and a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And really, that's what I've tried to impart into, into my own writing. And not just in terms of uh, being able to relate to people and convey their stories, but also familiarity, I think, with the jargon and with the other side of the equation, which is... Uh, how police struggle with these cases themselves, both personally and
0: professionally. Christy, how do you approach these stories?
5: Yeah, so early on, um, it was basically just writing from the public record, so using court documents and trial reporting um, and other existing sources of information, Um, but as time went on um, and I started gaining a higher profile, I started grappling with the question of, should I reach out to these Mm -hmm. uh, families and and tell them that I was going to cover their case, or that I wanted to cover their case, and it's it's real. I still don't know what side of the coin. Um, I, I fit on in terms of whether I should be reaching out because my podcast doesn't give any new information. It's I'm not investigating anything. I'm a storyteller. Right. So what good is it to reach out to them and re-traumatise them because I'm covering the story again? Um, and I have so I have started reaching out to families, um, and I've had some some very very good experiences, and then I've also had some some not so great where I've dropped the story because they didn't want me to cover it. So it's one of those things that's so black and white mm-hmm. in my situation. So I'm, it's something that I, I think about every day um, and, and every every new case that I cover. So, yeah.
0: That's it for this week. My thanks to the panel, to Thad Cockrell. Find his record, If In Case You Feel The Same, wherever you legally down music. Also, big thanks to Kim Eichlin. Her novel, Speak Silence, is available wherever you buy fine books. My biggest thanks, of course, though, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.